Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 129. In this episode, we're talking about rabbinic literature and Strock Willerbeck with Jacob Sarone. Jacob Sarone is a doctoral candidate at Friedrich Alexander Universität in Erlangen, Germany, and the general editor and one of the translators of the German resource Strock Billerbeck, which is recently being made accessible in English for the first time by Lexham Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Jennifer Guo, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this was a, a wonderful conversation with Jacob Cerrone about Strzok Billerbeck, about, about who they are and, and some of the context in which this uh, very famous resource was produced over a hundred years ago. Jen and Logan, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Jacob? One of the things that struck me the most was what Jacob said about how Strzok had worked against anti-Semitism. I did not know this and I just thought it was really, really awesome to hear. And then another thing is just the conversations about the importance of this resource, but also how they can't be used in isolation or will do more harm than good. And so I think, yeah, I think that it was really helpful the way that Jacob kind of articulated both that, yes, we need these resources to understand rabbinic literature because it'll help us understand the New Testament better. But if we use them in isolation, then we'll fall into all of the traps of parallelomania and um, all of that. One of the things I felt was really helpful and uh, insightful about our podcast with Jacob was how he just has such a wide knowledge of the scholarly interaction and reception of this book, uh, or these these volumes rather. And uh, he's going to outline for us that it's kind of trajectory and scholarship and how people critique it, engage it, like it, don't like it. Yeah, I found that really interesting and really helpful for understanding what this resource is and its story within biblical studies. And with that, here's our conversation with Jacob Cerrone. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're really excited to talk about this uh, new resource that's being made available to English readers who don't know German. Can you tell us a little bit about, just as we open up here, what is this resource? Sure. Strzok Billerbeck is often the shorthand term to refer to Hermann Strzok and Paul Billerbeck's Kommentar zu Neuen Testament aus Talmud und Midrash, translated into English, a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and the Midrash. And coincidentally, that title or that work was uh, published about 100 years ago uh, this year. And uh, it's really just a coincidence that the three volumes that constitute the main set have been released 100 years later. It was entirely unplanned. Uh, but this doesn't exactly clarify what Strzok Billerbeck is. Strzok Billerbeck is a collection of rabbinic sources which seek to provide interpreters with linguistic, cultural, contextual parallels between these texts and the texts of the New Testament. The hope of the authors or the editors of this resource was to provide interpreters uh, or readers of the New Testament with a better cultural understanding or linguistic understanding of the New Testament documents. 
Um, and I, I describe it as a collection here, but also refer to it as a commentary. And an interesting piece of history is that Strzok, or rather Billerbeck, never really wanted this resource to be called a commentary because it's not really a commentary at all. You don't find the typical sorts of things that you do in this resource that you find in a modern day commentary, which would include translation in full of the texts of the New Testament. You don't find regular interaction with the sources that are being cited, and you don't find hard and fast interpretive decisions from Billerbeck about the relevance of the various parallels that he brings to bear here. And he actually didn't want the resource to be called a commentary at all. Uh, we don't know exactly what he wanted it to be called, but he lost this battle with the publishers like many authors do in terms of either their titles or their um, uh, book covers. So this was a battle that was lost, and in some ways uh, that has sort of influenced the interpretive history or the use of this resource in the future. Thank you so much, Jacob, for that really helpful introduction to this volume. Um, well, who was Strack and who was Billerbeck? Can you tell us a little bit about these two figures? Absolutely. Strzok was a Lutheran professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at the University of Berlin. He dedicated his life to the understanding of Jewish literature, which can be seen in his publication of numerous rabbinic tractates and his introduction to rabbinic literature, which was translated even during his lifetime and underwent numerous editions and is now represented in the standard work even today, Sternberger's Introduction to Rabbinic Literature. We don't have the title or the association with Strzok in this introduction any longer because it has undergone so many changes over the last hundred years that it doesn't resemble his introduction, but it was one of the first introductions to rabbinic literature in German uh, speaking environment at that time. Uh, outside of his role as an academic, though, he built strong relationships with Jewish communities in Germany. And although these relationships were primarily in service of his mission to Jews in Germany, which is, of course, worthy of a podcast in and of itself, which, listener, listen to the Two Cities podcast on anti-Judaism, uh, he was, though, a staunch supporter of the legal practice of Judaism within Germany at a time when anti-Semitism was on the rise, and he routinely published literature that defended Jews against anti-Semitic sentiments in the press and defended them in the uh, courts against anti-Semitic charges that were being brought against them. Billerbeck, however, was quite the contrast to Strzok. While Strzok was a dyed-in-the-wool academic and was a professor and dedicated his life to the academy, Billerbeck was a pastor for most of his life. He studied Lutheran theology at both Greifswald and Leipzig, completed his course of studies, and then he served 35 years of his life as a pastor and had no aspirations to be an academic or to publish any literature. The sources for Billerbeck's life and his extant work is minimal, and it's difficult to determine how exactly he becomes interested in rabbinic literature. Uh, Joachim Heem Jeremias reports about the time when 
Billerbeck is preaching about the kingdom of God. And he, in preparation for this sermon, investigates Philo and Josephus and the pseudepigraphical works. And while it helps him to a degree, it doesn't help him understand what the listeners uh, to Jesus would have understood by the term kingdom of God. And he knew he had to look somewhere else. So he begins investigating the rabbinic literature. And the results of these investigations, we're told later, get published in Strzok's academic journal, or rather this journal is part of his mission to the Jews in Germany, entitled Nathanael. And he published around four or five articles in there. Uh, but we still don't really know what the connection is between Strzok and Billerbeck and how this connection arose. Uh, we have no record of how it began, and we know later on for the project that we now call Strzok Billerbeck that Strzok's main responsibility in this work was finding the resources and delivering those resources to Billerbeck. Uh, so it's very difficult to see how he would have done all of this work for the journal without Strzok's involvement in producing or rather delivering the various documents, including the Talmuds, the Midra uh, Midrash, and the Mishnah, for him to publish these articles. We, we can possibly surmise that there was sort of a con connection between the two of them beforehand, but we don't know what that is. It makes it even more difficult to know more about Billerbeck's life, about the connection between the two of these, because Billerbeck wanted to destroy most of the work that was not published. There's a story from Joachim Jeremias about the handwritten manuscript of Strzok and Billerbeck. Billerbeck wished for this manuscript to be destroyed, uh, that he wanted it buried with him in his coffin. And Jeremias reports earlier on that he does this, but we find out that there's still a copy of the handwritten manuscript in the archive at Greifswald, missing perhaps two or 300 pages. And when this news comes to light, Jeremia says, well, I would have done it, but the weight of this manuscript would have broken the coffin. So he doesn't actually do it. Some pages were destroyed. And we know that over 2,000 of his sermons that he preached were also destroyed, or rather they just are no longer available to us? Was it by the war or some other cause? So what purpose was uh, this resource intended to serve? In the forward to volume one of this resource, we learn the exact purpose that they wanted to fulfill. They write, the Lord, according to his physical origin, belonged to the Jewish people and was a descendant of David. Mark, Matthew, John, Paul, and Peter, as well as the other writers of the New Testament texts, except Luke, were also Jews. To correctly understand their expressions, one must understand the Judaism of that time with respect to both life and thought. So their goal here was to demonstrate the Jewish origins of the Gospels and of the remaining New Testament texts. So uh, what is the context in which Strzok and Billerbeck um, put this commentary? I know it's a little bit of a misnomer, or at least there's some uh, issues there. But what, what's the context in which this commentary uh, came about? Sure, there are two different contexts that we can talk about here. Uh, one would be the origin of the resource, and the other is the history going on in the world surrounding it and its reception. 
Uh, I'll talk about the first one and then the second one. Um, we find out, as I already alluded to before, that there's a relationship between Strzok and Billerbeck. Uh, Strzok notices the publications that Billerbeck has submitted to Nathaniel. He notices how gifted he is, and he asks him, would you like to write an introduction to rabbinic theology? And Billerbeck had absolutely no interest in this project. He instead was more interested in developing a katina-like resource that brought parallels from rabbinic literature to the texts of the New Testament. And he went in on this hard. And it is, it, it's entirely unclear whose idea this was. Some suggest it was Strzok's idea. Um, Jeremias writes his article in such a way to um, possibly suggest that it wasn't. It was Billerbeck's all along. We don't know, but he spent eight, 16 years of intense research on this project and was, as we learn later, the sole compiler of the commentator of the texts that we have now in the resource. The resource bears both names, Strzok and Billerbeck, and that was, it seems, a way in order to make it better received within the public. Strzok had established himself uh, as an academic. He had established himself as a rabbinics expert in the field. And they attempted to say to the public, this is a resource that is valuable. It is one that can be trusted, despite the fact that it had only been produced, only been produced by a Lutheran pastor. The various forwards to all of the volumes tell this story in an in unraveling sort of a way. In volume one, Strzok doesn't commit himself to say that he was participating in any sort of way. He reviewed the manuscripts. He uh, was the greatest resource to make it received, um, both in Germany and abroad. He produced money and funded the project, but it doesn't clearly say that he was an editor on the project, that he looked for the parallels himself. And then after his death, which was right after volume one, the public becomes uh, worried that the rest of the project was not going to be completed. And they begin asking Billerbeck, what's, what's to happen with this? And in order to assure them in volume two, he says, everything has already been done. It's been completed. It's already with the press. Uh, there's nothing to worry about despite the fact that uh, Strzok has been called home to heaven. But as time goes and volume four, the excurses, which we've not translated yet, um, perhaps we will, perhaps we won't. He continues to get asked who was truly responsible for this text, for this work. And he writes, finally, a word of a personal nature. I have been asked several times to clarify the late Professor Dr. Strzok's share in the composition of the commentary. In this regard, I refer to the preface of the first volume in which Strzok did not claim any involvement in the writing of the work. As editor, Professor Strzok has earned the greatest merit for the publication and dissemination of the work. It is solely to the efforts of his name and personality that the printing could be started in the time of greatest economic need shortly after the end of the world war and that the work immediately attracted attention, not only in Germany, but also widely abroad, which made the printing of further volumes economically possible. Here he clearly states, 
well, still with a bit of vagueness, that he was the sole compiler and sole editor of this work. As a side note, Jeremias later wrote in his article about Billerbeck that in light of this information, henceforth, it should no longer be referred to as Strzok Billerbeck. It should only be referred to as Billerbeck. And to be honest, I tried to make this uh, argument with Lexham, and um, they, once again, like publishers do, decided against it. They said, the resource has been known for the last 100 years as Strzok Billerbeck. If we refer to it as anything else, we're going to get questions about what exactly this resource is. Is it different from the commentary? Is it the same? Why did you change the name of it? So I lost the battle, much like Billerbeck lost his battle on the title of the commentary. I mean, that, that, that is a good point, though. That's kind of where my mind went. Did you have a specific pushback for them? Yeah, my pushback was perhaps we could put Strzok's name in parentheses in order to indicate this is indeed the same resource, but I lost. I, I understand why I lost. It was a good reason for losing that battle. They were probably right in the end. Everybody knows what Strzok Billerbeck is in the New Testament world, and to call it by anything other than that especially in the English-speaking world, would have created a lot of confusion. In the German-speaking world, though, everybody has followed, really, Jeremias's suggestion. They refer to it purely as Billerbeck when they refer to it at all. Often, though, between you and me, German professors often consult Strzok and Billerbeck first and then ignore that they have consulted it. So they go through, they find parallels that are perhaps legitimate or not legitimate. And English professors function much in the same way. They go to Strzok and Billerbeck first, they find what's relevant and what's not relevant, and then cite the primary resource. And I don't think that there's anything at all wrong with that unless you're interacting with their specific opinions when they are offered. You could just call it the uh, commentary formerly known as Strzok and Billerbeck. <laughs> I like that suggestion. It's not too worried, wordy at all. Perhaps we could develop a symbol. Yeah, being from uh, Minneapolis now, uh, I, I appreciate that, that connection. So what was the second context then? Right. There is also a historical context in which this resource arose. The interest in Judaism at the time Strzok and Billerbeck were working had greatly increased. Judaism and Jewish texts and the relationship to the understanding and interpretation of the New Testament was of great interest. Dahlman, for instance, had recently published his lexicon on Aramaic. Uh, he had published an Aramaic grammar. The, you had investigations from Dahlman into the flora, the fauna, and the geography of the land of Palestine, which had also recently been uh, published, and Strzok Billerbeck referred to these resources quite frequently. Before Billerbeck comes along, you have Lightfoot as well in his collection of parallels to the New Testament. You also had Schutkin's even shorter commentary or collection of parallels. So there was great interest in connecting the New Testament to its Jewish origins. But also, as we know, after World War I, there are rising anti-Semitic tides. And you also have investigations into investigations, um, so to speak, not at all, 
trying to demonstrate that Jesus was an Arian, uh, trying to entirely disconnect Jesus from um, Judaism, from rabbinic sources, from rabbinic texts. And we have this rise. I've mentioned Strzok's work within publications, within uh, the courts. And also Strzok and Billerbeck represents the culmination of the endeavor, though, to connect Jesus, the Gospels, and um, the epistolary literature and its historical context to that of Judaism. Uh, so tell us about the legacy and importance of Strzok Billerbeck. The legacy of Strzok Billerbeck is incredibly complex and complicated. Initially, it was received very well. It had a number of good reviews in the German press and in German publications, academic publications. There were some dissenting opinions, of course, but on the whole, it was well received. For the next 50, 60 years of scholarship, uh, it was used widely. Our commentaries reflect this usage. And then comes Sanmel in 1962 with his presidential address to the Society of Biblical Literature entitled Parallelomania. And we all know that term by now, I think. Looking for parallels everywhere and trying to connect the texts of the New Testament to some obscure source. And what some may not know is that Sandmel takes specific aim at Strzok and Billerbeck as a resource. Uh, the first part of his essay looks at the importance of studying work within its context and not just taking excerpts out of a specific piece of literature and saying, oh, this somehow sheds light on this New Testament passage without actually understanding the tone, the texture, and the context in which that original source was written. And he provides a number of different, very interesting uh, illustrations of this. For instance, Philo, he uses the term nomos agraphos, uh, the unwritten law, and then shows how easily it would be to connect that to the rabbinic phrase sheba'ape, which would mean uh, the Torah of the mouth or the oral Torah, and how easy it would be to connect oral Torah with unwritten law. But what Philo is talking about is something entirely different. He's talking about what philosophers might refer to as natural law, whereas the rabbinic scholars are referring to what we now know as the Midrash or uh, not the Midrash, sorry, the Mishnah and the Talmuds, the oral law that has been given uh, in this legendary recounting to Moses on Mount Sinai, along with the written law. And these are two entirely different things that we could connect incorrectly so if we do not pay attention to the context in which they're written. And actually, uh, to Strzok and Billerbeck's credit, or rather to Billerbeck's credit, we have a 34-page excursus on the Mimra Adonai, and it produces hundreds of parallels, potential parallels to the New Testament expression or the Johannine expression, uh, Lagos Theu, uh, the word of God. Mimra Adonai would be the word of Yahweh or the word of Adonai. And he demonstrates, though, through this, that the two phrases are not at all connected. He uses 34 pages to do it because there's a rise within German scholarship that 
might suggest that the Mimra Adonai is a hypostatic expression of the divine being. It's a pre-Christian analogy to what we finally get in Christian literature. And he goes and he demonstrates over and over and over, no, this is not what is happening. He provides potential parallels. He says how that might relate, but then he goes and says that's not in fact the case. And instead, what we find in the Mimra Adonai is something similar, though inconsistently applied uh, to the Masoretic pointing of the divine name or substitutionary expressions like the place or the name that are used in order to avoid using the divine name. Sandmail had a number of other criticisms. He had four specific criticisms of Strachenbillerbeck. The first one was that they pulled unjustified parallels. For instance, when Luke would have additional material to mark, uh, Luke being a Roman author should not have anything of a Jewish background to add to the Jewish context that's already provided by Mark or the origins that are already provided by Mark. And there should be no comments there whatsoever, in his opinion, in Strzok and Billerbeck. The second uh, criticism that he had is that compiling all of these excerpts for the user who has no knowledge whatsoever of rabbinic literature might give them the impression that they have already mastered rabbinic literature simply by reading their opinions on a specific topic or a specific verse. The third criticism was that Strzok and Billerbeck use excessive citation and do not call out what isn't necessary and only focus on what is. And then the fourth um, and crowning sin, according to Sanmel, is that even when they find legitimate and valid parallels between rabbinic literature and the New Testament, somehow that's not sufficient. Instead, they must demonstrate how Jesus said it better or Paul said it better. And these are the numerous critiques that Sanmel has of Billerbeck. Some of them are valid. Most of them are valid. Um, and they are things that we need to watch out for when we do use Strzok and Billerbeck as a resource. I would push back on a couple of these. For instance, Luke and Paul do have connections to Judaism. Paul specifically does. Um, and Luke demonstrates at the very beginning of his work that he has gone around and collected sources from various origins, and they may be of Hellenistic origin or they may be of Jewish origin. We have to determine that. Uh, and Billerbeck is very clear up front that that's the work of the interpreter. That's not his work. He provides us with potential parallels, and we need to go through and do the hard work of saying, is this contextually relevant? Is it more likely that it uh, has roots in a Greek or Roman context, or is this potential parallel from rabbinic literature more likely? Uh, so that's one response to one of his criticisms. I, I would say that the second criticism also really hits me hard, um, the one about impressing, uh, giving the reader the impression that they have mastery of the material. I've translated one in volume of this and edited three of them. That means that I've read the entire work three to four times. I probably am one of the only people in the living world that has done that. And I know that I've done that more than Strzok, one of the editors on it, has done. But I would never, ever 
claim that I have mastery of rabbinic literature, that I can confidently myself apply uh, the parallels to the interpretation of the New Testament without other modern contemporary resources, studies, and monographs. So I would impress upon any user of this resource that it is not sufficient for the interpretation of the New Testament. You have to have other works. You have to have other texts, including primary liter literature, in order to better know what the origins are of this specific saying. I'm interested also in E.P. Sanders' criticism, who you know, obviously really likes to use rabbinic material for understanding the New Testament. So what's his angle on, on critiquing uh, Strzok and Bilderbeck? Uh, and I'm also curious if you can shed more light on how these criticisms may have led to what, at least what I understand as the dearth of engagement with Tanaitic or rabbinic sources more generally in New Testament scholarship today. That's a great question, Dr. Williams. Uh, Sanders was another huge critic of Strzok and Billerbeck, but he wasn't particularly critical of using rabbinic sources. He wants to establish a specific understanding of uh, rabbinic Judaism or Palestinian Judaism at the time when Paul is writing, and he does so by citing rabbinic sources through and through. One of his biggest criticisms, though, of Strzok and Billerbeck as a resource is the fact that they do not have, he doesn't say this explicitly, they, they develop no true theology of rabbinic literature. Uh, one of his main points is that Judaism understood their relationship to God within the context of a covenant. And that covenant was one that did not require works righteousness in order to attain justification or in order to attain salvation, however you want to phrase that. Sanders talks about getting in and staying in it. And getting in is not works righteousness based. It's based upon the covenant that God establishes with his own people. And you stay within that covenant by doing the works of the law. And one does not have to do the works of the law perfectly in order to stay in. There are means of forgiveness. There are sacrifices that can be offered. There are means of penance that can be done, such as almsgiving and, and the like. And the biggest way that this applies to Strzok and Billerbeck, though, is they are constantly pulling excerpts out and applying them specifically to New Testament passages, which gives the impression sometimes, very often, that Billerbeck's view of Judaism was one of works righteousness. And lacking this theology of Judaism or theology of rabbinic Judaism, which Billerbeck had no interest in producing, he does not have the foundation to say this is what Judaism believed about God. He only brings parallels detached from an overall theology. We have to also remember that rabbinic literature is a very specific type of literature, especially the halakot. Uh, it is law-based um, literature. It is not the full extent of what Jews would have believed about God in their relationship to God. They were concerned about how do I behave in certain situations. 
much like we in our own churches, depending upon the context, contexts in which we live, have unwritten laws and rules about how we behave within the church context, how we behave within the world. Uh, examples could go to how men are supposed to keep their facial hair. I was told constantly I was supposed to shave my head or wear my hair in a specific type of manner or wear my best for Jesus, which included suits and ties when I had one. And there were, of course, uh, exceptions for the poor, right? If the poor didn't have, in your community, didn't have the means to buy these specific clothes, they came in the best that they had. Uh, and in rabbinic literature, I, it's not a direct one-to-one -one parallel, of course, but they are concerned about keeping the law, uh, doing the works of the law, and there are other theological streams and threads that need to be taken into account in order to best understand Judaism. And Strzok and Bilderbeck don't do that. And without that, it can very easily be misused. So why do you think that the rabbinic writings are so neglected by New Testament scholars today? Um, it seems like we definitely see the importance of the literature that came before or is roughly contemporaneous with the New Testament, right? Like the a lot of the pseudepigrapha and the Qumran literature, but then there seems to kind of be this assumption that what came slightly after just doesn't matter at all for our interpretation. Yeah, Jen, that, that's a great question. I, I do think that rabbinic literature, especially the Mishnah, is neglected in current New Testament studies. I think a number of reasons can account for that. One would be that Sanmel and Sanders did a really good job of warding people off from using Billerbeck for good reason. They out, I, I've outlined their criticisms. Uh, people had been using the resource for more than 40 to 50 years without any critical engagement with the rabbinic literature at large, without any understanding of Judaism more broadly. And that accounts for a big reason why they don't use it today. They, they have been warded off from it. And yeah, if you don't use it responsibly, you shouldn't use it. Uh, another big reason is, as you mentioned in your question, Qumran. The discoveries of Qumran were not available to Billerbeck, of course. They came several years, decades later, and they are roughly more contemporaneous with New Testament literature. And they should be prioritized in understanding the environment of um, the New Testament documents because the date in which they were written is rather important. Things change. Uh, things change a lot in the amount of time that the Mishnah was codified. And that gives a priority to the Qumran literature, of course. I, I think another big reason is that, like I said as well in my response to Sanmil's criticism, that even myself, after reading, translating these documents, I don't have any formal training in rabbinic literature. And I heed the warnings of Sanmel and of, um, of Sanders. I'm very cautious about when I use that in application to New Testament literature and into related literature. And I think for good reason. That doesn't mean that I should not use it. Uh, it means that I should read more broadly because it is very important literature.
Uh, Neusner also had a very important critique uh, or rather warning. And that's another reason why I think New Testament scholars avoid rabbinic literature. And he's writing specifically from the perspective of trying to understand New Test uh, rabbinic literature. In his introduction to uh, rabbinic literature, he makes the point that we cannot uh, reliably date any of the texts from the Mishnah, the Tosefta, or the Talmuds earlier than the final date of their composition, which means that uh, early third century for the Mishnah, um, and then the fourth and the fifth centuries for the respective Talmuds, the uh, Jerusalem Talmud and the, or the Palestinian Talmud and the uh, Babylonian Talmud. So with such late dates, that makes it much more difficult to use this literature uh, reliably, reliably. After the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, for instance, things changed in Judaism much more than they did in the several hundred years uh, prior to it. And after that, uh, it looked entirely different in some ways. You had various sects within Judaism at the time of the New Testament. You had the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, the community, the Yahad, the community in um, Qumran, um, the Zealots, as we learn in the New Testament. Uh, you have all of these competing um, sects within Judaism before the destruction of the temple, but after the destruction, we start to see some codifying effects that take place. Uh, Vespasian permits uh, the founding of a school in Yavna. Here we have the sources, um, as we're told in legends, for what becomes rabbinic Judaism, what will become the Mishnah and the Talmuds. And this codifying is going to shape the various questions that are being asked of their faith. It's going to shape the various uh, authorities that are relevant for uh, the communities of rabbinic Judaism. So one specific example of this would be uh, the importance of scripture post 70 CE. Before, scripture was important, of course. It justified uh, and was the basis of the halakot, uh, the decisions about the law that were being made. But there wasn't the felt need of including scripture verse reference when justifying those decisions. But after the destruction of the temple, we start to see that uh, in the redactional layers and in the, um, the final composition of these documents, that scripture verses were added um, later in order to say this is the justification for our judgments. Yeah, so on, on that point about the, the dating of these texts, you know, you mentioned Qumran being more contemporaneous than the rabbinic um, traditions. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of these things that you see, you see a lot of appeals to particular rabbinic um, uh, texts, and, and it might be the case that some of the traditions have some antiquity. It's hard to sort of adjudicate some of that. Certainly in terms of the dating of these texts, um, we can follow Neusner's um, uh, recommendations, but in terms of the antiquity of those traditions, how, how much further back uh, do they go? There's some, there's some question there. And, and it seems, uh, you know, to me, and probably, probably plenty of uh, New Testament scholars that 
uh, it's a case by case basis, right? Um, we, we don't make uh, sort of like a, um, a one size fits all approach to this. Uh, it's going to be adjudicated kind of one by one. There's certain places where I feel like, oh, this particular tradition probably does have some some deep antiquity, but then there's others that I feel less inclined to to go in that direction. For example, um, I'm I'm not inclined to read, for example, the Last Supper in light of the Passover Seder tradition. I, I uh, currently working on you know alcohol in the Bible, and of course, it's a really important issue. Were there four cups of wine that were consumed, and were they basically following a Passover Seder? Uh, I'm not inclined to think that. Luke's the only one who mentions that there was more than one cup, and I don't necessarily think that they're following a very specific understanding of this is what each cup represents, etc as is often sort of sort of assumed. And obviously this is debatable and there are plenty of people who would disagree with me. For example, in my opinion, I think the the four cup tradition develops after the temple was destroyed in AD 70. But I'm just curious about that that dynamic of how we use this resource, uh, especially um, when we want to be critical and thoughtful about this process of, um, of making use of it. And so what are some, what are some thoughts you have about uh, adjudicating some of these issues a little bit further? Yeah, that's a very important question. And it's a difficult one for me to answer as a non-rabbinic scholar. Like you said, there is a great deal of debate in uh, Neusner or Neusner was very firm earlier on about not being able to rely on any tradition whatsoever before the composition, the final composition was uh, completed. But then we start to see some change uh, in his viewpoint that um, as he was working through a specific text, he saw that he didn't question the traditions uh, in their assignment, except for one specific one. So he, he's starts to see that there aren't really any uh, contradictions here and that even when there might be issues, that at least it's still within the same generation or at least it's still within the same time frame where these specific rabbis would have been interacting. And one of the things that I find really helpful about the English edition of Strzok Billebeck is the introduction that's been offered by David N. Stone Brewer. He definitely does take a different approach than Neusner, uh, who is more critical of earlier dates. And he says that we can generally be confident about the various traditions that are assigned to specific rabbis. And he gives us three different principles in there to use as guardrails. Uh, the first one is that the dates uh, can be provisionally assigned according to the named attribution. So generally, if it's assigned to a specific rabbi in a halakot, in legal, specifically legal uh, material, it is probably reliably within that time frame or within the time frame in which that specific rabbi would have lived. May not have come from that individual, but within that time frame. The second principle he gives us is that traditions will develop over time, and older traditions depend upon earlier traditions. And what he's trying to demonstrate here is, is that there are specific additions within a judgment that would not have been applicable whatsoever to the time period in which um, that specific rabbi is speaking. And we can reliably see that that was a older addition to that judgment. And the third uh, principle that he gives is 
what I've already alluded to is that non-halakhic traditions, uh, that is traditions that are outside the Mishnah, the Tosefta and the Talmuds are undateable. So narratives about the various rabbis, legends about them and how they lived are, are unreliable. We, we can't say that they came from a time period other than the final date of that composition. And that gives us good guardrails for beginning to evaluate whether or not a specific tradition is uh, dated or datable to the time period in which that rabbi to whom it's assigned um, arose. Uh, some other principles that I just can think of off the top of my head would be, does the specific judgment um, occur in other um, pseudepigraphical literature, other second temple literature, uh, in the Qumran literature? Or do we see parallels here between the way that um, Judaism is represented in those documents and the rabbinic literature? And if there are, I think we can reliably say that would have likely been uh, uh, a tradition that took place, a legal judgment that had taken place at that time. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing about this really monumental and significant work. As we wrap up, would you mind telling us who this resource is for and what are the unique advantages of using it in the Lagos edition? Sure. As I've alluded to earlier, this resource can be for anybody. It can be. Uh, it was composed and written by a pastor who seriously investigated the rabbinic literature in order to serve his role as a pastor. He started the research in order to help him understand a specific concept in the New Testament in order to help him preach better. But as we have seen from Son Mel, from Sanders to Neusner, we have to be very, very careful in the way that we use it. So if we're going to pick it up and start using it, uh, the pastor, the serious student, the scholar who is going to apply these parallels to the New Testament has to do so in light of other primary literature and needs to do so as well in light of other secondary literature that is and has been more recently published. I, I say more recently published because there are numerous commentaries that have used this literature in a way that would not be approved by these specific critics. Um, and it is important to recognize that. And that leads me also, though, to alternative uses of Strzok Billerbeck that I find really interesting ways of exploring this specific resource. Uh, the first would be anybody who wants to understand German interaction with rabbinic resources at the time in which Billerbeck is writing, as well as the Auswirkungsgeschichte, uh, the um, reception of this resource within scholarly literature that comes after it. How is it being used? How did uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, for instance, regularly use Billerbeck in order to understand specific concepts or terms in the Old Testament and rabbinic sources? Uh, after the publication of this resource. Another really interesting, in my opinion, way of using this resource is we often find in the New Testament citations or allusions to the Old Testament. And Billerbeck brings in rabbinic literature that relates to the interpretation of that specific Old Testament passage. 
And I'm currently uh, working as an in-house editor of with uh, De Gruyter for their Encyclopedia of the Bible and its reception. And reception history is huge right now. And we can see how specific rabbinic resources have received Old Testament texts and how they have ter- interpreted them and, and applied them to their specific contexts. And uh, I, I think that if we're interested in rabbinic uh, reception history of Old Testament texts through the lens of the New Testament. This is a, a very interesting entry point into that. And for me, I found personally that it's a good entry point as well into the rabbinics. Uh, for somebody who has only studied the New Testament and Old Testament, uh, second and uh, primary literature as well, the pseudepigrapha and whatnot, as you would expect from a New Testament uh, doctoral candidate uh, and has never touched uh, rabbinics before. It's it, it awoke an interest in me in rabbinic literature uh, with the awareness that I need to study it properly. Um, but I think that this resource can do that for other people as well. Recognize the importance of rabbinic literature, go from there and say, how do Jews today interpret their own literature? How do they interpret rabbinic literature? And how do I properly interpret it and apply it to the New Testament? Uh, you mentioned using uh, Spillerbeck as well in Logos, and not to be a salesman for Logos by any means. I think that the, the um, physical editions of the books are great. You have the running headers that make you go back and forth between volume one, two, and three. Um, but one of the good things I think about using it in Logos specifically is the linkability. Uh, as we saw, Sanmel's huge criticism was texts without context. And within Logos, if you have the Talmud, if you have the Mishnah, if you have various Midrashim, uh, you can simply hover over it, click it, and then actually properly read these tractates within their context and determine better what uh, the context is for that parallel and whether or not it's applicable. Well, Jacob, this has been wonderful. It's so great to hear more about the importance of of this resource, the legacy of this resource, and all all of the fantastic work that you must have put in to make this available. I mean, uh, I mean, I've read a couple books in German, but I can't imagine translating uh, <laughs> huge ones at that. Uh, mein Deutsch ist sehr schlecht. Um, so, so well done to you, and uh, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, and honestly, an honor. I listen to Two Cities all the time, and to be on it was an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you.